0: French said, it may have been illegal, but at least it was legitimate.
1: Is this going to change the uh, outcome of the Civil War not one bit?
2: This is Deep Dish on Global Affairs, going beyond the headlines on critical global issues. I'm Brian Hanson, and today we're talking about the aftermath of the recent U.S. strikes on Syria that were, of course, coordinated with France and Great Britain. I'm joined for this conversation by Greg Jaffe, a reporter covering national security issues for The Washington Post. Greg also has covered the White House and the military for The Post. Greg, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. Also in this conversation is Ambassador Ivo Dalder, who's president of the Chicago Council on Global Affairs and also served as the U.S. ambassador to NATO from 2009 to 2013. Ivo, great to have you back. Nice to be here. So, as we know, last week the United States uh, launched airstrikes against uh, Syrian targets in response to Syrian use of chemical weapons. Um, Greg, I was wondering if you could start us off by just giving us the background and review, what did the U.S. actually do?
1: You know, so the U.S. fired, I think it was about 105 cruise missiles. It was a very targeted strike. So it was a strike designed to punish the Assad regime for the use of chemical weapons, but I think explicitly designed not to kill or hit uh, Iranian or Russian targets, and it was explicitly designed not to be a threat to the Assad regime. So this isn't a predicate to trying to hurt or damage Assad's military capability. This was very tightly directed at his chemical weapons capability. And how effective was the strike? You know, I don't know. I guess it depends how you judge effectiveness. Did all the missiles hit their targets? They seem to have. Um, Is this going to change the uh, outcome of the Civil War not one bit? Will it stop Assad from using chemical weapons again? You know, I think if I had to guess, I would say probably not.
2: So some of the critics of this action have made the argument. L.A. Cohen has made the argument that actually acting in this case was worse than doing nothing; um, that it really just exposed the weakness of the of the U.S. and our inability to really have an impact um, on the ground. Evo, how do you react to an argument like that? Was something important accomplished with these strikes?
0: Uh, I'm sympathetic to Elliot's argument, uh, although I probably would. Take the conclusion to that and to a different to a different end. Um, uh, here's the issue: uh, chemical weapons were being used uh, after we had finally, in 2017, struck uh, the Assad regime uh, in response to yet another uh, major nerve gas attack. At that time, I think it was uh, sarin that was being used. Uh, President Trump and the national security establishment uh, uh, around him came together, launched the the 59 cruise missiles at that time. And uh, we'd seen that for a while there were no chemical weapons used. And then it started up again. We had chlorine use, which is actually not a banned chemical substance. It's banned uh, as a uh, weapon of warfare, um, uh, which is an important distinction. And then you had this this major uh, number of casualties. And really called the president's bluff and said, when are you going to do something again? So striking in this case, just to remind the Assad regime that the use of chemical weapons somehow is is, is unacceptable, was the main purpose. Um, it didn't change, uh, as, as Greg said, it didn't change the, the, the situation on the ground. It was, in fact, explicitly designed not to change the situation on the ground, uh, Elliott's view is probably that we, and I'm just putting words in his mouth, but why not, uh, is that we should be changing the situation in the ground. My view is uh, I don't think we should be changing the situation on the ground. And I think the separation between a response to chemical weapons use and every other use is important because we have banned the use of chemical weapons since 1925. Uh, this is a norm that now exists in the international uh, in the international system that it's important to enforce. It was also important to enforce it together with allies uh, and to say it's not just the U.S., it's others that are part of it. And in that sense, uh, uh, will it deter future use? Probably not. I agree with Greg. But will it make Assad think once or twice before doing it again? Probably. And that's a good thing. Yeah.
2: So the bottom line is 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 that, and the
0: use of chemical weapons is an important norm for us to enforce. Yeah, I think so. I think uh, chemical weapons are different. They weren't used in World War II, at least as battlefield weapons. They were, of course, used to exterminate millions of people in death camps, uh, and that's rare for chemical weapons to be used, and it should be rare. And in fact, it needs to be rarer.
1: Yeah, Greg, can you I, I would say one thing that too our enforcement on the norm of the of this norm isn't as absolute as we make it sound. So, you know, there had been a dozen or so chemical weapons attacks since, since the early part of this year. You know, when we t- step in, it tends to be when then there are pictures, when the, there's a high casualty or high fatality number. So even our enforcement of this norm, you know, it's not pure. And Not his, that it should be, but that it, it's one small point.
0: No, it's, it's, it, you're right, Greg, because uh, remember that McMaster was at, uh, at the Munich Security Conference and mentioned there that the Syrians have been using chemical – chlorine in this case, uh, chemical weapons uh, repeatedly. Uh, and, and nothing happened until pictures and large, larger number of deaths uh, occurred. So uh, you're, you're right that it hasn't been pure.
2: And let me just push on that a little bit. Is that problematic that we only occasionally enforce this? Does it undermine the credibility or the effectiveness of the acts when we do choose to to um, respond to a violation of this norm? That's a tough one for me.
1: Yeah, go, go I mean, ahead. Go I ahead, think Grace. If, if we were, yeah, my sense is the White House has really been wrestling with this issue about when do they and the president as well when do they enforce this norm and when don't they? So there was a, a meeting that wasn't well covered or well written about. Uh, that the president has in the Oval Office, I, I believe it's in early March, with McMaster, um, uh, Mattis, uh, John Kelly, uh, to discuss. You know, uh, the president's upset at these small scale uses of chemical weapons and wants options to both uh, strike Syria and then to punish Russia with uh, s- sanctions for its support of the regime. And it's interesting at that point. They produce a series of options on both of those counts um, but choose not to act and essentially they don't act until they get this much larger attack.
0: Yeah, I mean I think the, the important point is that we did act uh, at, one, at some point and should you use uh, a military response after every single instance in which you can verify the use of chlorine gas even if the numbers of casualties are, are relatively low? Uh, maybe you can make the case, I would make the case that it is important to enforce it uh, on a regular basis if there is a regular uh, degree of, uh, uh, of defiance. Uh, my suspicion is we're not going to see chemical weapons used for a while. Uh, and maybe, uh, maybe when, when everybody's attention is somewhere else, uh, it, it comes back. By the way, Uh, The reality also is they're not particularly effective from a military or even a population control perspective. So it may not be necessary to use them in order to achieve the effects that Assad is trying to achieve, which is to control of territory. So this
2: leads to an area where a number of our Facebook group participants asked questions. Um, Michael, Christina, Nawel, all basically asked about the legal justification for the attack. And, And I think there are a couple issues here. One is whether or not there is a legal justification, either in international law or um, whether there is domestic authority for the president to uh, to take this action. And the listeners were kind of uh, asking about, was there authority and does it matter? One piece just to add on before I invite you guys to comment on your own views is that several commenters have noticed that the Trump administration has not created justifications either in terms of domestic law or, I'm sorry, in domestic authority or international law, whereas, well, in past administrations, there at least has been an attempt to justify the actions in both of those ways. Whether or not people found those convincing or not, so I'm curious about both these sets of questions: about is there a justification for this, and um, does it matter that the Trump administration hasn't engaged in even using that kind of language to address
0: the attack? Let me take the the international one, if I can. So, uh, which is a which is a complicated one. Uh, one, I do think it. It is important that when you use force you, f- you at least try to justify that within the international norms. It's particularly important if you're using force to enforce an international norm, uh, which is the justification in this case. And, and the reality is under our international legal system, uh, there is no clear-cut way in which you could say this is either for self-defense uh, or it was authorized by the UN, it clearly wasn't authorized by the UN. Um, uh, which are the two ways in which you can, under international law, can, can, can use force. Um, uh, which is why, for example, the French said it may have been illegal, but at least it was legitimate. Uh, which is, by the way, a new argument by the French, who have never uh, adopted the l- illegal but legitimate uh, form. They've always found some way uh, to, uh, to, to try to embrace uh, international law. The, the Brits made the argument... Uh, that and this is this comes out of the Kosovo War back in 1999 that there was a humanitarian emergency that required one to act uh, on behalf of the international community, which ultimately led to the doctrine of responsibility to protect. If a government is not protecting its citizens, then there's a responsibility that falls to the international community to do that for you. How you square? Uh, responding to chemical weapons but not to barrel bombs under those circumstances is a, is, is a question mark. Uh, but it does, it, it does raise the fundamental issue that um, uh, not everybody is going to agree with our legal or, in fact, non-legal interpretation uh, uh, of the action. And that, in my view, means the more countries you could have gotten to participate, the more countries you could have said can come along and be part of the international effort – The more legitimate, at least it would be. In this case, it was better than what we did in 2017 when we did it alone. Now we did it with the Brits and the French. Uh, It'd be nice if we could get maybe the Saudis, uh, maybe the Jordanians, who are absolutely who live in the uh, in the area, or indeed countries from other parts of the world to participate in this as well. We have 60 coalition partners uh, in in the area, so it's not like we can't uh, uh, call on on other nations to be part of this. And Greg, how do you see these issues of, of
2: authorization and legality?
1: It's a tough one. Um, you know, I, watching the Obama administration, uh, I felt like they often sort of tied themselves in knots legalistically when it came to this these sorts of issues. There were just, at times it felt like there were just too many lawyers and um, uh, uh, and the debates were kind of circular and endless. And this time it feels like there was too little discussion. With regard to these issues, and so I don't quite know what the right balance is. It's interesting to me there hasn't been a lot of outcry from the Hill, although this week we're starting to see um, uh, a resurrected debate around this sort of authorization of for the use of military force uh, in Iraq and Syria and uh, and and around the world. A new authorization since we've sort of been continuing not sort of we have been continuing to operate under the 9/11 authorization, although the Syria strikes against the. Assad regime, don't fall under that authorization.
0: I was interested reading the other day, and don't remember exactly where, that Mattis had been pushing for a congressional authorization, which, by the way, was the exact issue that Obama pushed in 2013 and failing to get the congressional authorization, then didn't move forward with the strikes at that time. Do you have anything on this? Was that a ruse by Mattis not to do anything? Um, because there was this sense that Mattis really thought that the risk of escalation was too high, or, or was it a serious uh, legal argument on his part?
1: You know, I don't think we know, and we don't know, <laughs> even that he made this request. So the White House yesterday, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, put out a statement on the record saying that Mattis made no such request, uh, and Mattis denied making that request. Does that mean that he didn't do it? I'm not sure. Um, uh I think part of the reason they were so quick to deny this on the record was because they're worried about this AUMF debate, and they see this as they see the two issues as connected.
2: Yeah, think, AUMF debate. Do you just for our listeners? Oh, I'm sorry. Benefit, yeah, the authorization
1: for the use of military force—the sort of replacing the post the the 9/11 uh, use of force. So whether Mattis made this request is a subject of some debate. I do think you're exactly right that Mattis was is is cautious about. Um, using this force in Syria. And I think for a couple of reasons. One is he doesn't want to provoke the Russians. I think even though he has a reputation as an Iran hawk, he doesn't want to uh, provoke uh, the Iranians. And he worries about US troops who are still scattered throughout Iraq and Syria. If we get in a fight with the Iranians, then those troops become very vulnerable very quick. And then on top of all of that, he knows he's got a president in President Trump whose heart is not really in this Syria fight. The administration made clear again yesterday in briefings to to Congress, uh, a classified briefing, that, you know, the president, despite these strikes against the Assad regime's chemical weapons capability, you know, we're still on the way out the door.
2: And there was a there were comments that uh, made at the time of the original use of chemical weapons by Assad that Trump's previous comments about wanting to get out the door could have emboldened Assad. The fact that Trump is returning to this message of we'd really like to get the heck out of here relatively soon. um, Does that have an effect on what kinds of messages were sent or what's achieved by these strikes at all?
1: You know, I don't think it did just because I think that, you know, our strategy is so confused. It's hard to know what the message is at this point. That would be my simple answer.
0: Yeah, I might go further. I think our our strategy is pretty clear. Uh, We are not going to intervene in any way, shape or form to affect the outcome of the civil war. Uh, We are there for a very defined purpose, which relates to ISIS. Um... Now, I happen to think that the civil war and ISIS are, are inextricably linked, so your ability to go after ISIS without solving the civil war in the long term is is going to be pretty small, but I think both the Obama administration and the Trump administration have tried to make this distinction between defeating ISIS on the one hand and solving the civil war on the other hand, and I think Assad and certainly Putin and, and the Al-Quds forces, Soumani, uh the Iranian leader of the Al-Quds forces have concluded that we are not going to intervene and prevent them from doing what it is that they're going to do. An occasional missile strike against empty buildings or empty runways is the price to be paid for living in the world that we did, but they're going to just push ahead. I don't think we have any credibility left. I don't think this is particular to the Trump administration. I think it's true for our policy for the past six or seven years. Uh, On influencing the outcome of the civil conflict, Uh, and I don't think they think we have any influence or desire to influence it.
2: One of the things, and I would
0: say,
1: maybe from a pure humanitarian standpoint, maybe at this point it's just best to to let the regime win and end this war because the suffering is so great, especially if we're not if we lack the capability or will to, to broker a real compromise.
2: And in terms of the dynamics on the ground and in Syria, what, there has been a little bit of reporting over the course of the week that um, the U.S. has been talking to other Arab uh, countries in the region about the possibility of bringing troops in to kind of serve in the roles in the areas in northeast Syria where we would be leaving. Um, do we have any sense of if that is uh, if, if that's a likely outcome? And if so,
0: whether or not that would be beneficial or not? My sense is that they're not going to do it without us. Uh, They may not even do it with us, uh, but they're not going to do it without us. Uh, I think we've learned over time that in order to build large military coalitions, uh, the U.S. needs to be in the lead. Uh, I have yet to see a coalition in which the U.S. was not in the lead. Uh, Perhaps the only exception was the NATO uh, coalition against, uh, against Libya. Uh, but that was a NATO coalition, so the U.S. was de facto in the lead, even if we weren't the major forces. And we did participate in, in much of that uh, that operation. Uh, so the idea, which seems to be uh, strong in the White House, particularly in the Oval Office, that um, the, the Saudis and the Jordanians and the UAE are going to deploy tens of thousands of troops and spend uh, tens, if not hundreds of billions of dollars to reconstruct Syria – just doesn't strike me to be very realistic. Uh, quite apart from the fact, why would they rebuild a country, Syria, uh, that is on the, their enemy list? Uh, quite, you know, how, how to how to square that uh, problem. But I, I just don't see the Saudis or anybody else doing this.
1: Yeah, and then to just add to the absurdity of this whole situation, it seems like Eric Prince, uh, you know, the founder of Blackwater, is playing a role here too, suggesting that some of the support can be done through you know private military contractors rather than U.S. troops and uh, that the uh, Arab nations could pay for it. And you know, I think it adds yet another layer of absurdity to this plan.
0: Gives outsourcing our military uh, leadership a whole new name. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so I want to
2: turn, you guys have both referenced the, um, intera- the involvement of our allies in this. And I think this is interesting and just want to ask you about it because President Trump has certainly not been a person who has embraced our allies as uh, as, as key ways to, cooperating with allies as key ways to accomplish foreign policy goals. Yet in this case, uh, as you both pointed out, the French and the British participated in this action. Um, does this tell us anything more beyond this single action of whether or not the administration is, is shifting its thinking about how to use allies or how allies are, are thinking about engaging this administration? Is there a bigger lesson in this?
0: So uh, I don't know the exact sequence of events that got the French and the, uh, and the Brits to join this strike, whether it was demand or supply driven, that it, whether it was because we asked them uh, or because they said they wanted to be part of it. Uh, my sense is it's more the latter. Uh, the French, and particularly Macron, uh, had, had made clear uh, in the t- at the time of the April strikes, which he wasn't elected at that time, uh, that he thought not striking in 2013 and leaving the French hanging uh, was a terrible mistake by Obama, and that if this happened again, the French needed to be there. Uh, so I assume that the moment there was any talk about a possible military strike... Uh, Macron put up his hand and said, me too. Uh, uh, it, it, I think the same is in some ways true for the Brits, who um, uh, had asked for and received a significant allied, including American support, for responding to Russia and the assassination attempt on, uh, uh, on the Russian former uh, former spy and his and and his daughter, uh, and therefore decided we need to d- demonstrate that when allies are there for us, we should be there for the international community in this case, because it's not for the United States. So my sense is this, is this was as much driven by out of London and Paris as it was about, uh, out of Washington. Now, to the credit uh, of the administration, they embraced it uh, and they made it real. Uh, uh, I think Mattis, uh, as one of the, the leaders in, in this a- effort, would always welcome allies because that's where he comes from. Whether Trump really cared one way or the other, uh, I have my doubts.
1: I think Trump cares from just a pure financial perspective, you know? I mean, his, his motivation is the allies need to do more so we can do less. So the notion that you could sell him that, hey, the Brits and the French are involved, you know, maybe it's a few less American planes, a few less American bombs. I think there actually might be some appeal just in that logic. I think he wants the Arabs involved, too. He's not anti-coalition. He's pro-allies doing more so Americans can pull back and focus on America.
2: Yeah, I think that's fair. So as as we close... Um, what is the most consequential next decision for this administration regarding the situation in Syria? So, where should our, li- our listeners pay the most attention to understand um, what the next
0: steps are and, and what the implications are there? So what's most significant? Ivo, I'll start with you. I think two things. If there's another instance of chemical weapons use anywhere in, uh, in Syria, will we again respond? is going to be the first uh, thing to look for. And the second is, um, at what point within the, I really think within the next few months, certainly before the end of the year, uh, have we decided that the job of our troops are done and they will start heading home? And Greg, what do you see?
1: I think that it'll be interesting to look and see how quickly these troops come out. I think it'll say a lot about sort of Mattis' influence uh, over this president right now. So the president initially, when he announced the, the withdrawal at this uh, rally in Ohio, uh, his aides asked him, how quickly do you want the U- U.S. troops out of Syria? And he said 48 hours, which is, you know, ridiculous and was never going to happen. But it it was, I think, Mattis' influence that pushes him to sort of essentially a four-to-six-month time frame, which is what we're talking about now. How quickly those troops come out, whether they stay out, I think it tells us a lot about Mattis' influence over this president uh, with regard to the use of the military.
2: Great. couple of important things to keep our eye on. Evo and Greg, thanks very much for joining for this conversation, and Greg, particularly thanks for highlighting some of your reporting um, and developments in D.C. that haven't gotten as much attention as they belong. Thank you both for being here.
1: Thanks for having me. Thank
2: you. And thank you for tuning into this episode of Deep Dish and Global Affairs. If you have questions about anything you heard, please feel free to ask them on our Facebook group, Deep Dish and Global Affairs. And as a reminder, the opinions you heard today belong to the people who expressed them and not the institutional views of the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. If you like the show, let us know by tapping the subscribe button on your podcast app. You can find us under Deep Dish on Global Affairs wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you think you know someone who would enjoy this episode, please tap the share button on your podcast app and send it to them as well. Deep Dish is produced by Evan Fazio. Our audio engineer is Joe Palermo. I'm Brian Hanson, and we'll be back soon for another slice of Deep Dish.